while police photographing our license plate. What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Hello and welcome to the Reasonable Voices News Talk Radio program. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, and today my guest is New York City playwright and novelist, Gary Morgenstein. Good day, Gary, my friend. How are you today? I'm doing fine. Happy Monday. Hey, happy Monday is right. Yes. Well, before we get to really, because Gary and I will get into a conversation, we love politics and he loves baseball and we love the theater, of course. But before we get started, I want to tell the people who may not know Gary uh, so we can, uh, you know, know who we're talking to and all about him. He's our reasonable voice today. We have the great pleasure of visiting today with Gary Morgenstein. Gary Morgenstein's novels and plays have been featured in national media from the New York Times, Entertainment Weekly, Parade Magazine, the New York Post, Sports Illustrated, no less, and America's National Public Radio. In addition, Mr. Morgenstein is a winner of three 2022 Perry Awards, including Best Original Play. Playwright Gary Morgenstein's multi-generational drama, A Tomato Can't Grow in the Bronx, will premiere December 2nd through 17th at the Chain Theater in Manhattan. His Broadway World Award winning for Best Play, A Black and White Cookie, premiered this summer in New York City's The Tank Theater and was hailed as fascinating and a heartwarming story. In our second segment today, we'll ask Gary about the director and cast of A Black and White Cookie. But first, throughout our first segment today, we want to hear more about our reasonable voice novelist and his published novels. However, don't worry. Stay with us for the second segment, and I promise you we will talk to playwright Gary Morgenstein, and he will tell us all about his plays, especially A Tomato Can't Grow in the Bronx, premiering December 2nd at the Chain Theater in Manhattan. All right. So, the rest they'll have to learn from you, Gary. (laughs) So, welcome to the show again, and how are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. It's a little chilly, going to rehearsal for a tomato can't grow in the Bronx today. Going to take production photos, very exciting. Oh, yeah, that is very exciting. Are you using a photographer yes. I know? Yes, Neil Chan. Uh, good, good. Marina's dad, Marina Chan's dad. 
you know, just so because I don't want Marcello to be too humble. Um, the brilliant Marcello Orlando directed a black and white cookie um, at the Tank Theater. I was honored to work with him. And one of our actors, Marina Chan, who was in, in that play, is also in A Tomato Can't Grow in the Bunch. Very different role for Marina because she plays a very ditzy, hippie um, realtor <laughs> on her first job. <laughs> dealing with this Meshuggah Jewish family. <laughs> Marina being ditzy, that is out of character. Okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to the plays in the second segment, yeah. but thank you. So give us some idea of what inspired your writing of a trilogy of dystopian political novels. And before we get to A Dugout to Peace, the final in the trilogy, tell us about A Mound Over Hell and maybe a a fastball for freedom. Great titles, by the way. I mean, it's really simple. I can tell you how the sausage is made. My wife and I, back in 2015, my wife and I were having Sunday breakfast, everything bagels with a schmear, Mm -hmm. and listening to the Beatles. And the idea popped into my head, what about a dystopian novel where America has lost World War III and the, the nation is run by someone named Grandma and baseball begins its final season ever? I thought this is a pretty cool idea, right? Now I just have to come up with the rest of it. That's right. A little thing like that, uh, you know, it will be, you know, 1,500, 1,600 pages late as the trilogy is finished next year. But Amount Overhell begins in 2098 after America and the West has lost World War III to the Islamic Empire. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to do a gut punch to America. I wanted to, like, knock it down and, and presume that we've lost freedom because I, I'm a great believer, as, as you know, we've, we've talked before, in freedom and the sanctity of democracy and the, the belief and the knowledge, frankly, that freedom is not preordained. Mm. There's nothing to say that America will always remain free, a great power. Ask the Greeks, the Romans, the Brits, you know, on, on yes. with all that. So so I wanted to, to knock America apart and, and rebuild it. And I thought, well, what else but losing a war? Mm. And to have done it with the Russians is... You know, it's been done already, right? The Chinese might be more likely, but boring. But Islam, we're talking about more than 1,300-year confrontation. It's a third rail. There's just so much of a a pronounced and um, deep uh, culture clash. Mm. So America is now run by something called the um, family, run by elderly grandma. And it's it's more of a communal society founded on love and relationships and friendship where religion and God is outlawed, patriotism is outlawed. We have the entertainment industry, lawyers and banks are banned under the anti-parasite laws, which, you know, I don't need to explain any more than that. <laughs> and and also social media is banned under the anti-narcissism laws, hmm. and which is probably a good idea now, if you think about it. Yes. But, but, but because, and this is the thing with, when you write dystopian literature, and that's the, this is the great challenge. There's, you want to sh- the reader to understand how this could have happened without mm. referencing what is happening now. For example, there's no mention of Trump or Biden or blah, 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 nor are there really, really mentions of contemporary baseball players. But you want to show how this, this could have led, this path could have led to America suffering this incalculable loss of 17 million people, including 4 million children. Mm. And so that's... That's the challenge. So, for example, with social media, since the, the society is founded on the belief that nothing is more sacrosanct than love, and again, this is post-identity um, politics. It doesn't mm-hmm. really matter. I mean, most of my main characters are diverse, gay, straight. It, it completely doesn't matter. 
the most important thing are your relationships. And if you have, I don't want to sh- uh, shock anyone out there, but the thousand friends on Facebook, the preponderance of them are not really your friends. Mm-hmm. There you are. And this is right. And this is also a society where individual responsibility is paramount. You must think for yourself. So we can't have influences telling you what to think. So you need to follow, you create a dystopian world. Then you must follow your own um, rules, which is sometimes challenging. Sometimes you say, all right, why did I come up with this? You know, schmuck, you know, <laughs> yeah. how are you going to get out of this? And then lastly, into all this comes baseball. Baseball mm. associated with the great America, the past America, um, the, the, the heyday of America, which is now viewed, viewed as treasonous and is essentially entering its final season at Amazon Stadium, which used to be known as Yankee Stadium. <laughs> and uh, the, the, the seat of American government is now in the Bronx because Washington was hit with a nuclear attack. And there's just two teams left playing in this downtrodden ballpark. And mm. then what happens is uh, one of the main characters, Puppy Nedic, Nedic, is a baseball historian. You know, talk about having a job with a short lifespan. And he <laughs> wakes up one morning after drinking too much bourbon on his birthday and there's this smelly old guy on his floor and who insists that he's Mickey Mantle. He says, really? This is really what I need now? But the great players come back in baseball throughout the trilogy, A Mound Over Hell, which has been called 1984 meets Shoeless Joe, mm. a fastball for freedom, and then next year a dog got to peace. Baseball becomes sort of a metaphor mm-hmm. for the old America, the new America. The, it becomes the, the, the focal point of resistance after a while. Mm-hmm. Wow. This is, yes, and, and it's that that's all in a mound over hell. We haven't even gotten to the second two. Is that right? Yes. Well, it, it continues. Yes. A fastball. Yeah. A fastball for freedom. Take us there for a bit. Yes. Put them a all three together. For freedom, what happens is I open things up, and half the novel is set in the um, Islamic Empire in London mm-hmm. because I wanted to show life there. And I have to tell you something. In our world, where if you look at someone the wrong way, you're canceled, okay? I mean, <laughs> we mm. know all the, the insanity that goes on, especially as an artist. We can yes. get into that more with the challenges as an, as an artist, how to be honest. Yes. But in two books are out now, so published, that's about a 1,000 pages. And I'm very proud to say only one person, one leader, ever attacked me for being Islamophobic. Uh-huh. Yes, okay. which, you know, considering that this is America versus Islam, yes. because what I show, and you know, I did it with, and I know we're not talking about plays, but you know, I did it with my, <laughs> you know, with a, a, a black and white cookie. Sure. When you talk about hate. You have to be honest enough to show it. Otherwise, yes. it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It's not, it doesn't have an impact. But you have to do it with respect. And for example, Islamic culture, I, I researched mm-hmm. heavily. I went to the Koran. I made sure the names were right, the dishes were right. When I quoted, you know, their holy books, you know, so you can show the the agony, the the, the dark evil of hate, but as but and it also what you must do is show a light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, and that's what I try to do in this, this these dystopian novels. There's no superheroes. As you know, it's not. This is not a Marvel or Disney production. Mm-hmm. This is just ordinary people caught up in extraordinary times who really just want to live their lives. They don't want to, you know, 
have to fight the world. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and and stand up. This is never, you know, in that game plan. They just want to, you know, meet someone, fall in love, have a job, like most of the human race. And so, but they end up being heroes. And I think that's uh, if you show regular flawed people at the, at the end of the day, there's some hope. Mm. You come together. You don't have to be squishy and you know Pollyannish, but just that maybe. Maybe there's more, we have more in common than we believe. Yes. Wow. Which reminds me of other things that you've written too, but we'll wait for those. But the third, the final novel in the trilogy is Dugout to Peace. Has that been published yet or finished or when is, what's the schedule on that? Well, I'm actually finishing the final edits now, mm-hmm. and it's going to be published by BHC Press sometime next year. Okay. So I just have to, it's, it's a huge book long because originally it was supposed to be four books mm. and then they said well you know trilogy is the best you know, the days of George R. Martin those you know Harry Potter people don't have the, the patience for those long series so I had to condense the last book into the two books into the last book gotcha so it's been a little long but I'm there for example there will be the first ever world series true uh, world series ah uh. You know, we've got some flack in the past, that is America. When I was growing up, I remember there was, I think it was from the Japanese teams because they were so good at baseball. And and as Gary knows, I'm, and actually all my listeners know, I'm not really knowledgeable uh, or all that interested in sports, except I often watch movies about baseball and football Mm -hmm. because they tell a story about a specific... Well, it's like show business, and, you know, people come together and they have to work as a team to succeed. They have to. And it's the same thing with the production of a movie or a play or what have you. But but I do remember at one point there was some big to-do about why do you call it the World Series when it's just, you know, American players... So I'm glad you mentioned that because I'd forgotten about that. So the truly World Series, yes. All right, well, leave it to Gary Morgenstein. You know, at the risk of stating the obvious, I guess, there's two clear and present themes in your novels and also in your plays, baseball being one of them, obviously. But did that begin with your childhood or was it something that came with age or... I think what I'm trying to ask, uh, Gary, is which influence came first, the writing of the novels or your real-world experiences, which clearly includes a love of baseball? Well, I I must have been eight years old, and I wrote a short story about the Yankees. Ah. And this make-believe shortstop. And then my first two novels take me out to the ball game, and the man who wanted to play center field for the New York Yankees were about baseball. And I'm a sentimental person, not just about baseball, and, and you know that. Yes. And baseball thrives on sentiment because it, there's a longing, there's a connection to the past. You know, the numbers in baseball have meaning, which things in, you know, like football or basketball. Okay, so who's the all-time leading basketball score with, like, like 32,000 points, something like, well, really? Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> right? But you say, like, you know, 61 and it's Roger Maris is 61 homers or Joe DiMaggio 56 is 56 game hitting streak you know, there are certain numbers and and the baseball is more connected to the past yes uh, while the game has changed a lot and sometimes too much you can you can go back to those times and you could see baseball as it was not that much different than how it is now 
and it was always, you know, America's sport. And mm. I think there's a sentiment that, you know, the, the the father and the son and the father and the daughter playing catch and the you know, you remember the first game you were ever taken to. There's just something about it. There's something about going to a baseball stadium and seeing the green. And it's, you know, it's like God painted it. It's yes. on the on the grass. It's it's beautiful. So I think that's baseball is very sentimental. And I think when you write a novel about it, you know, feel the dreams on and on all yes. over the class. Yes. Um, uh, it, you know, it, it touches a different chord than other than other sports, frankly, and the history. A bittersweet story to add to that. that you, you make me remember this. As a kid, you know, I always watched movies, black and white TV, watching movies. That's what I did. I didn't run around playing sports or anything. But um, this is back in the day, and of course... I wasn't old enough to see it in the in the movie theater, but it, when it came on television, you will probably recall William Bindix playing Babe Ruth, which yeah. was which was some uh, not as good casting as we have. Movies have gotten better at it. Let's put it that way, and then the truer stories. But that was my introduction to baseball was William Bindix playing Babe Ruth. My dad wanted his eldest son to love sports the way he loved. Uh, and he insisted at 14 years old that I should go see a baseball game with him. So I went because I had no choice. Well, as it turned out, the Washington team was playing the Yankees. And the Yankees I knew all about because I watched, they were the ones everyone was making a movie about. So all the names you mentioned, I remembered and recognized on the field, you know. And, and every time, and they were playing it in, in D.C., and every time the Yankees would do something great, which is a lot, I jumped up and screamed and yelled in support. And, of course, I was probably the only one in the stadium who was for the Yankees because they were playing in D.C. But at any rate, my father never took me to another ball game, but he had another son, so it all worked out. <laughs> all right. Well, this has been great. This has been great. And we're only halfway there, folks. We're going to take a short break now from dystopian politics and round the bases, if you will, to our playwright's home plate. So stay with us for segment two on The Reasonable Voice with our literary guest, Gary Morgenstein. We'll be right back after this short break. Stay with us. And now, from WatchFireMusic.com, vocal artist Jenny Burton, singing Who Will Heal the World? Send me up to the mountaintop 
Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices News Talk Radio program. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. And on the Reasonable Voices show, we do a podcast, of course, of Reasonable Voices in politics and education, in history, and, of course, the arts. Now, featuring today our New York guest, Gary Morgenstein, novelist and playwright. And as promised earlier, during our second segment, we're going to focus on Gary's plays, which are also filled with some of the same well-drawn themes, although maybe a bit more heartwarming than dystopia. What do you say about that, Gary? Yes, there's, there's a little more humor. <laughs> yeah. The world is not about to end, yes. That's true. <laughs> well, I think I already mentioned in the introduction your Broadway World award-winning play, your Perry Awards, including Best Play for A Black and White Cookie, which I was very proud of directing and I'm pleased to do so. But tell us a little bit about home life. Which, which borough do you call home and, and how long and why? <laughs> well, I've been a, I'm, an, I'm a native of the Bronx. I grew up six blocks from Yankee Stadium. And then we fled... And we moved to Queens and then Long Island. And since the 80s, I've lived in Brooklyn. I love Brooklyn, ah. center of the known universe. It is. Brooklyn is Brooklyn is incredible, you know. It really is. I've lived in Forest Hills, Queens, for a while before I settled in Manhattan. But anyway, all right, well, that's nice to know. So tell us about A Tomato Can't Grow in the Bronx, one of the two plays. I, well, of course, I read Black and White Cookie because I directed it, but I also read... A Tomato Can't Grow in the Bronx at the same time that you sent me a Black and White Cookie, and I love that play as well. So tell us, tell us more about it. Well, it's set in 1968 amid the, uh, the political, racial, and cultural unrest of those times, and it's about a working-class Jewish family in the Bronx who are just struggling to find each other, and they want to move to Long Island to find the American dream. And well, we have so much in theater, in the movies, in television, is plays, are, the stories are about messages, and they're about compartmentalization mm. and hyphenations. And they're forgetting the most important category, people. Mm. That's it. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it must be about people. And when your goal is to be honest and accurate about the, the world that you've created but you also want it to have universal appeal. And this is a family. Yes. And there's nothing so central to our lives than families and the love and the love found and the love lost. When we opened in New Jersey, in Freehold, New Jersey, in April, for which we won three Perry Awards, and we had talkbacks afterwards, after a number of the shows, and now the audience was mixed, ethnically, racially mixed. But people said, well, I recognize my grandmother. Mm. That's what my father was like that. That was the relationship, you know, with my mother. And it didn't matter that the family happens to be Jewish. Mm -hmm. It means that the, the, the human themes, there's so much more. And you've heard me say this before. There's so much more that unites us and divides us. And so I, within this play, it's about a bickering family that I think 
um, a loving family. It's warm. It's poignant. It's funny. But I think people will gravitate towards it. Yes. I, I, I remember it very well, and I read it oh, oh, months ago. And it is hysterically funny, but it certainly deals with a lot of serious relationship-type things and, uh, you know, what happens when the people you love don't agree with you. (laughs) And, you know, and all that. But, I mean, it's a marvelous play. It still stays with me, and that's always great. But to to your point, like a black-and-white cookie, a tomato can't grow in the Bronx. It's not just about, even though you give it a Jewish setting— uh, and Jewish characters for, predominantly. It's not just about the Jewish experience. It's it's the human experience. And when, as you say, an audience of diverse backgrounds can watch your plays, and I've seen this personally, can watch your plays and they see themselves in it, I think that's that's because you're speaking to the humanity. What do you think? Yes, and I think that's so important. And we have, you know, the movies are uh, increasingly taken over by CGI. Mm. And, you know, the, the, there's nothing, you know, they, uh, the superpowers. Well, you know, there's no power stronger than love. Yes, yes. You, you know, we fail to remember that. It's you, And we also, and as you say, when you remember a play or a movie or a book or a television show, you're remembering not the, the banners flying, but you're remembering the people. Yes. You're rooting for the people. That's, That's right. Right? You're identifying with the people. That's the most wonderful thing. You know, I'm not comparing it, but, you know, the the, 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 the classic literature throughout the, the day, you know, the, 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 the centuries that people remember from high school identifying with this character yes. or that character. And, and I think that's what, as a writer, you want to get to, you want to reach, and you want to touch your audience. Yes. And I would add, too, that historically... When we go through challenging times, like World War II, what do the people on the home front turn to? It was newsreels. It was movies. We turn to the arts, and the arts reflect us and, and teach us and welcome us, calm us, soothe us, you know, guide us. And certainly your plays do that. Let's remember, in World War II, during um, the German Luftwaffe Blitz of London, the government closed the theaters at first, and the people said, are you kidding me? Yes, we opened yes. the theaters. And it's the most wonderful story because there would be the people, the, the, the play would be on and the air raid would start. And they would be signaled from the stage by lights or, or there would be an announcement, please go down to the air raid shelter. More often than not, people said, no, carry on. Yes. <laughs> and it, it was that so very British, but you're talking about wanting to find something apart from the reality. Yes, yes. And I think that's really important. We have to remember, and we also have to remember as, as artists, you and I, and the, and people, many of the people listening, or who, ex- who are not artists, but experience art, is you have to be positive. Yes. And when I say positive, I'm not talking Pollyanna, you know, squishy, not at all, because that's, you know, that's not my writing, but you have to show some hope. Yes. You can't just say, oh, my God, the world is collapsing. Chicken Little. Remember? The oh, chicken, yes. I know we're dating ourselves with Chicken Little. But, <laughs> I but, didn't but, mention but Chicken Little. Chicken Little, <laughs> right? You can't just say, you know, everything is wrong without saying, okay, but how do we make it better? Yes. How do we give a pass? And it doesn't mean there's going to be, you know, the bright sunshine and everyone's going to skip around happy. But you've got to give people that sense yes. that not all is lost. You, you know, you don't want it to be like an O'Neill play. Yes. Everyone, oh my God! You know, right? <laughs> and I love O'Neill, but you, you do need to, 
you need to, I don't know, shake it off a little after you see it. But it's great work, but it's just, uh, it takes you to the dark corners and uh, doesn't always bring you out into the sunshine. But okay, we won't pick on O'Neill anymore. But I'll tell you, the third play, I know you've sent me to read, but I haven't yet. Very familiar with a black and white cookie and a tomato can't grow in the Bronx, which is going to open. And we're going to mention all that information for you guys listening soon. But Free Palestine is about academic freedom versus political bullying. Tell us something about that. Well, it's about both. It's had two dramatic readings. It, it was a, at a synagogue in Bradley Beach, New Jersey, and then a theater also in New Jersey. And it's about the story of a, the, the, the firing of a Jewish private school teacher hmm. of Israeli-Palestinian studies because the predominantly democratic socialist Jewish board doesn't think he's balanced enough hmm. to teach. Uh-huh. So it's about being having views which is suddenly unpopular and talk about not messaging hmm. because ultimately it's about two grieving families who are united in this. Uh, the main character, um, Adam, is, is, the, is the teacher and for pro bono, he comes across this African-American woman who handles his case, mm. whose husband is, is a, an orthodontist of all things, but he's running for Congress. Mm. And her handling the case is embarrassing him and, and her potentially harming his candidacy. Yes. And But they had, they had an issue with their son being bullied. So it's all, it, it's about, one of my heroes is Winston Churchill. Yes. And, and he's had said many brilliant things. Yes. And one of them is democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. Yes. And so what the play tries to get at is even if views are unpopular, you must listen. Mm. And especially when you're dealing with the young in the school, it, it takes place in a private school and, you know, on the high school level. But increasingly you see, and I follow this way too closely for my mental health, what's happening on college campuses. Now, when we went to college, the, the point of college was to, to be exposed to all different ideas. Yes. Right? Yes. That was it. The that- stuff that you didn't know, you go, whoa. Right, right. And but increasingly now, you cannot offer these views mm-hmm. without being shut down, without without being suppressed. And views which are are suddenly up, like Zionism, mm. the the wave of anti-Semitism on America's college campuses is frightening. Marcello, it's frightening. I mean, Berkeley recently, nine of the clubs said that they will ban any Zionist speakers. You know, I was I was going to ask you about that, Gary, after we talked about the plays, but since you've brought it up, let's what what is this all about? I mean, anyone, you don't have to be your age or mine to know there was a World War II. Uh, you know, there are enough movies and documentaries and books, and, you know, if you have any interest in in world history or at least American history, you know what that was about. So, how is it and I'm making an assumption here because I believe it is, how is it that a third of the country, arguably, can be influenced in the same way? How do they not see the similarities? And, of course, that's not just the Jewish population they're uh, attacking, but also Asians because somebody says COVID comes from China and, and of course, uh, African-Americans and brown people. You know, I mean, so what is that all about? What, what are your thoughts? I know that's a huge question, but... Well, I think that you always need someone to blame. Uh, and I think that's sad. Yes. And I think 
people who, you know, those people. Yes, and, yes. You know, you're, you're Italian, I'm Jewish, but we've been those people. Yes, you, oh, oh yes. It doesn't matter, blacks, of course, but it, it applies to anyone who's different. And, it, and when you label someone as different, you delegitimize them, yes. you dehumanize them, and you, you supposedly, you think that you're, you know, in your smugness, you're, you're making yourself superior, but you're not. Yeah. And you, you, you think oppressing someone makes you better, but it's not. And, and when it comes to anti-Semitism, America had the most anti-Semitic hate crimes in history last year. Yes. And the, the leading state was New York's New York. Mm-hmm. And 60% of them happened in New York City. And increasingly, and when I talk about the play, it's about the boycott, divestments, and sanctions movement, which is trying to de- delegitimize Israel yes. and target Israel. Now, that isn't to say you can't criticize Israel as you can criticize anyone. Mm-hmm. But when you single out the Jewish state and yes. not single out other countries who are not democracies, mm-hmm. where there's not freedoms, you it takes on the hue of anti-Semitism and it's beginning to mainstream. Yeah, uh, anti-Semitism, and that's what's scary. It is it's, scary, and it's mainstreaming know, right? it's, it's in America. It's on the fringes. Yes, I, it, but it, it, right. It, it, yes, exactly. I mean, it's it's here, and it's very difficult. When you know, we're both history buffs. Sure. When I when I know as much history as I do, and you see examples of it's repeating itself, that is yeah. extremely disturbing. All right, we're going to get back to talk about. A Tomato Can't Grow in the Bronx. It's opening December 2nd. It runs through the 17th of December at yes. New York's Chain Theater. Tell us why we should see this play. Because it's going to make you feel good. Because mm-hmm. you're, going to re- you're, going to, you're going to recognize your grandfather, your mother. <laughs> you're going to recognize part of your childhood. You're going to recognize what it was like to be in a family. And increasingly, you know, the nuclear family where grandparents grew up next door is a thing of the past as we know yes and it's gonna make give you make you feel hopeful that in our upside down uh through the looking glass world that we're increasingly living in that there's hope that you can find someone and love someone and you're gonna laugh exactly i want to talk a bit about black and white cookie but when we as we sign off we'll definitely give the information again for a tomato can't grow in the Bronx. One of the things I know while we were rehearsing Black and White Cookie, well, first of all, we went through everything as a couple of the cast members have written me to remind me there, were, there was COVID, there was, uh, there was just, there were a lot of challenges and we talk about the play must go on. I think the cast and everyone involved with a Black and White Cookie certainly personified that statement, that theater statement, the show must go on. We went through everything and I remember we had a conversation one day, and I want to ask you this because it surprised me that you were impressed with what I said because I thought it was quite obvious. I said that uh, I'm, I don't eat a lot of desserts and I certainly don't eat a lot of black and white cookies. But for those who don't know what they are, they are huge cookies, and Gary bought some to rehearsal for everybody. I mean, they were a good good uh, circle of about, uh, what, a six-inch diameter almost even, In any case, uh, it's cookie, I mean, uh, you know, dough, and on top of the cookie, half of the icing is white and half of the icing is chocolate. And I I didn't think I was making a particularly profound statement when I said one day to the cast that I think what you have to, you come to the grip to realize you're looking at this cookie from the outside, 
and they look different. But And I tried it the night before. Since Gary had passed it, I took it home, and I finally gave in and started eating it. But <laughs> the moment you take a bite out of it, you realize that what's under, whether it's the white icing or the chocolate icing, is the same thing. Yep. And do you remember how you responded to that? I was like, wow, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, good. So it wasn't just... Because I thought... Oh, I thought, I mean, I just thought that was obvious. But when the playwright sees something or hears something that uh, that strikes a chord after the guy has written it, you know, and it's up on its feet, I was quite impressed with that and that you and that you accepted that and and made that clear to everyone. Oh, this is this is a good thing. I want uh, this is what I want you to think. Anyway, I hope I'm not making too much of the moment, but I was just so impressed. I thought you were going to say, oh, I knew that, Marcello. <laughs> no, I, no. I, you know, I like to learn. Well, right? yes, well, so do I. And that's, that's another thing. If you are open to learning new things, you will find that you will be learning them from a lot of people who don't look like you, sound like you, talk like you, think like you, or vote like you. And mm-hmm. they still have a lot to teach you. As a matter of fact, even more so. All right, let's get off my box here. Reminder, here we go. A Tomato Can't Grow in the Bronx, written by our guest today, our reasonable voice guest today, playwright and novelist Gary Morgenstein, will open December 2nd at New York's Chain Theater, and it runs through December 17th. Give us an idea, Gary, if you could, uh, like an address, or how can we get tickets, and anything you want to say about Beatrice Garfield? Yes, it's well. You can get tickets, brown brown paper tickets. Uh, there's a you go to Theater Mania. There's also a link there. It's at 36th Street and Eighth Avenue, three um, three twelve uh, West 36th Street. And I'm privileged. It's directed by Bernice Garfield Zeta, and it's a wonderful cast of Andrea Bell Wolf, Jackie Kusher, Holly O'Brien, Mike Roche, Spencer Newman, and our very own Marina Chan, who was in a in a black and white cookie. Yes, now, she plays like kind of a ditzy real estate. Agent. I find that hysterical. You got to tell her that really made my day when you told me yes. that. Because <laughs> yes. yes. that's so different. She was. I, I just love uh, how actors will make the journey when I'm directing them, yeah. and she certainly was at at the top of the list of just uh, being a sponge and doing such incredible things with that role. And of course, everyone, Jordan and and Dolan, and um, you know everybody, everybody yeah. was involved. Before we go, Gary, and we must, but tell us, you know, you have a website. Uh, how do we find out more about your work? How do we buy your books? Well, the, the books are at, listed at the publisher, bhcpress.com, and you could go to Barnes & Noble. You could go to Amazon.com, Apple Books, wherever, you know, fine or not so fine books are sold. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Oh, Gary, this has been absolutely rewarding and uplifting and always when I have a conversation with you. I actually let you talk some this time. (laughs) (laughs) Gary, one last question, and I ask every guest this. What is it you want us to take away from this conversation? What do you want the people listening to us and the wonders of podcasts, you know, they can download it and play it anytime they want what do you want them to get from this conversation? What would you like to impact on them? That you could probably learn a lot more and be a lot healthier going to a play and laughing than listening to the mainstream media make you crazy. Well, that's 
<laughs> that's the truth, that's for sure. You yes. know, and you know I write a lot of politics and whatever, and so I have to watch a lot of news. But even I have reached the point where, you know, of course, first of all, they just keep repeating the same thing over and over again. Yeah. And so I've just muted it, and unless I see something that I think might be different, which happens every three days, maybe. Anyway. <laughs> all right, Gary, my friend. Gary Morgenstein, novelist, playwright, New Yorker, lives in Brooklyn, has got plays uh, being produced all over. What are your hopes for Free Palestine? Well, I, I'd like more dramatic readings. Uh-huh. Okay. That's what I would like. And we did fundraisers for the synagogue and then the theater. So what I'd like is to get into venues that might be responsive to this sort of play and this sort of provocative play, and then they could raise money. Well, you've done things in New Jersey and, of course, in New York. How far... Uh, give well, this invitation. Good. Yes, Washington D.C. is great. Give me just a little more particular, so people listening, if they have any idea or of resources or ability to have a dramatic reading, staged or not, how would they present that to you? Well, it's really simple. Um, you need a stage is good. Good, you know, good acoustics would help, and you need a long table on a stage with a tablecloth, so you don't see, you know, that, that it's actually a table. And you need six chairs for the cast and one for the, the, the narrator who's going to read the stage directions. And you should give people after the performance a nosh, some pastries, some coffee would be nice. And then we have a talk back and you could sell tickets and keep the money and raise, raise it for your organization. Okay, so they, that's, what they, that's what all they need to have to do this with you. Yes. How do they get in touch with you to, to offer that? Well, I'll give you my email. It's G-A-R-Y-M-O-R-G-E-N-S-T-E-I-N, the number nine, at AOL. Okay. Okay. Well, this is great. Well, Gary, thank you so very much for being on the show. Gary Morgenstein, I love your work. You know that. We went through, as I said, so much with the black and white cookie and still persevered and and put on a great show. And uh, everyone was marvelous. And and even you had COVID. I had COVID, but I didn't have a serious uh, illness. But we had um, at least two members of the cast and the playwright coming and going. We worked. We went back to Zoom. We staged it on Zoom. That was talk about learning experience. I've never directed a show on Zoom before in my 40-year career. And yet we did that. And everyone came in once we were able to all be safe and in the theater and on the stage. And they all did the blocking uh, you know, that they had only received sitting in their homes on a Zoom and a computer. It's just, it was incredible experience. Okay, so we've got plays out there by Gary Morgenstein, and Black and White Cookie has premiered this last summer, and Free Palestine, uh, we're looking forward to dramatic reading, and of course, don't forget, a tomato can't grow in the Bronx. And, and again, it is opening on December 2nd at New York's Chain Theater and runs through December 17th. Okay, Gary, thank you so much for being on the show, and I wish you all the very best. You take care. Thank you so much for having me, Marcello. My pleasure. Bye now. And now, enjoy Watchfire Music featuring vocal artist Jenny Burton singing Tear Down the House from Is Anybody Listening? Build it, build it, 
for the child in you. Innocent hearts now, we'll build it, we'll build it for all the world to know. What's in the past, those who built it did the things they had to do. But something happened along the way. Something happened along the way. Something managed to go astray. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. It is the destiny of democracies to skate on thin ice. America was born out of a dream of faith in the future, hope in humanity, and love for self-government. However, even an exceptional theoretical idea is only as strong as its most self-serving link, the bedrock cash flow theory that the moneyed powerful will honestly trickle down true information and economic justice. When ensconced only in the twisted history of America from the mouths of those whose historical traditions and talking points are skewed to maintain political power over those uninformed and or misinformed, regarding truth that would set us free from the big lie, many Americans are now feeling helpless and alone. When we vote for candidates claiming America needs saving from our present evolution, we surrender both country and ourselves to the violent whims of self-appointed saviors, radicalized militia and MAGA Republican foot soldiers akin to those who attacked our government of, by, and for the people on 6 January 2021. Our general lack of command of America's foundational historic facts makes everyone in America vulnerable to those choosing to imitate World War II European dictators by dividing us through uniting our historically separate tenets. 1. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. And 2. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. American elections continue to be a collection of imperfect humanity politically seesawing to elect humans striving for perfection for all. While this has been an infrequent success, some of the elected have been a perfect fit for the time in which they served all living among us. 1. Abraham Lincoln, first elected Republican president, saved America from the same kind of scare tactics coupled with a peculiar institution that still garners votes from conservative Republicans in 2022. 2. 
Franklin Delano Roosevelt, lifting us out of conservative Republicans basking in the M.O. of Coolidge's The Business of America is Business and Hoover's Hooverville's launching our Great Depression. 3. John F. Kennedy, inheriting a Cold War from Eisenhower's too-little-too-late military-industrial complex warning, saving humanity's world from nuclear destruction following an unauthorized CIA attempt to occupy the island of Cuba 90 miles south of Florida, giving Khrushchev the excuse to install thermonuclear weapons aimed at America, whose ground commanders were authorized to launch should America attempt another invasion. It should go without saying, but the truth is, we need to hear it. The value of an informed electorate armed with the common sense to fact-check pizza pedophilia conspiracies before locking and loading. 2. The human decency to learn from the cruelty of Nazi persecution of Jews to not repeat such inhumane violence against our fellow citizens 75 years later. And 3. The intelligence to see through a black-and-white television political ad using the name of God in vain for one's own vouchsafe vanity, vanquishing viability for vicarious vote-getting victory via the villainy of vainglory so venomous to virtue. It is historically short-sighted and self-defeating to believe Trumpism is something new in American history. Trump is nothing more than our 21st century update of 19th century robber barons, mid-20th century McCarthyism, Dixiecrats, and the Ku Klux Klan. All preambles to Trumpism. America's better angels have always had to be the balancing act in counterpart to our penny-wise and pound-foolish denial of our collective supply for individual demand produces inflation. Consider when the Galilean from Nazareth said, The poor will always be with us. Perhaps it was less a prediction than an admonishment for, As we ignore the poor into a life left behind, we welcome the evil of false prophets, convincing us to pollute our planet, our minds, and our destruction from within. Instead of succumbing to the most outrageous human volume, in times of economic uncertainty, true faith summons that still small voice within and risks unlocking our courageous moments of decision, rejecting being taken back to past injustices and inhumanity. We need to ask each other and ourselves, what can we hope to profit if we gain personal wealth but lose the soul of our nation? Depending on who or what device wields the double-edged sword of knowledge is power, we usually acquire what we're looking for, whether the gift of wisdom or antagonistic demagoguery. For American voters mesmerized by a president proclaiming, I am the chosen one, putting on self-aggrandizing shows of bombastic performances, claiming to be capable of unprosecuted murder on Fifth Avenue, on behalf of those walking in his shadow, 
Even those cloaked in religion, choking beliefs into arrogant life-and-death superiority over election workers, over God's chosen people, and over those simply not Caucasian enough to be a part of their American dismemberment, we must stand tall and vote true in order to save America for our children. Because anyone claiming America's dream succeeds with Trumpism's American nightmare is the ghost of our past inequalities seeking to shroud us in the darkness. On Tuesday, 8 November 2022, please vote for the American dream, sharing our freedoms, justice, and equality for all those who come after us. I am Marcello Rolando, the reasonable voice, and I know where my voice belongs. And I hope you do as well. Thank you. And join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.